Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we say it and we ask that you would help us, Lord God, to preach. Amen. I'm kind of sorry for this because it's a little bit crass, okay? But Louis C.K., you know, the comedian, sounds an awful lot like Solomon. The thing is, I, you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones yes. are taking away, yes. is the ability to just sit there like this. That's being a person, right? Yes. No one can, they've got to, uh, you got to check. Because, there, you know, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> that, yes. Yes. Yes, I. Yes. Yes, Just I know that, what you're talking about. knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes <laughs> that I'm alone. Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving, and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. I was in my car one time, and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on. And it made me really sad. It's like Jungle. What the one's on Jungle? Song? Jungle Land. Jungle. This one where he goes, Hurry! and he sounds far away. You know, I was like, that's, 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 half, that's half of them. Yeah, I heard it. And it gave me kind of like a fall back to school depression feeling. It made me really sad. Yeah. And I go, okay, I'm getting sad. I got to get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. And then you know, somebody cool writes back, and then somebody not as cool writes after, and I'm like, oh, you, I'm not gonna. I got somebody, I got somebody better. <laughs> but uh, hey, how come you didn't answer my text? <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah, well, yeah, because he well, wrote he yeah. wrote first. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, I started to get that sad feeling, and I was reaching for the phone. And then I said, you know what? Don't just be sad. Just let the sad mm-hmm. just stand in the way of it, and let it hit you like a truck. And I let it come and bruise, and I just started to feel, oh my God. And I pulled over and I just cried like a bitch. I cried so much. And, I, and it was beautiful. It was like this beautiful, it was just this, sadness is poetic. You're, you're lucky to live sad moments. And then I had happy feelings because because when you let yourself feel sad, yes. your body has like antibodies. It has happiness that comes rushing in, rushing in to meet the sadness. So you're, I was grateful to feel sad, and then I met it with true, profound happiness. It was such a trip, you know. And the thing is, because we don't want that first bit of sad, yeah. we push it away with like a little phone or <laughs> for the food, and you get you get a little kind of. You never feel completely sad or completely happy. You right. just feel kind of satisfied with your product. Yes. And then you die. So that's why I don't want to get a phone for my kids. That's what I'm <laughs> Vanity of vanity. All is vanity, says the preacher Solomon. And what does man gain from all his toil under the sun? 
Well, it seems like Louis C.K. and Solomon both gained, gained some, some knowledge. Uh, knowledge that like all is for nothing, as Louis C.K. says, and I'm alone. Vanity and death. Loneliness and death. He, he says we'll risk taking a life just to avoid feeling that, that, that feeling, just to avoid facing the sadness and mourning that knowledge. We'll take a life. That sounds like sin. He then describes facing the sadness and being surprised at beauty and, and joy. It's like he loses his life and then finds it. It's like he confesses that he's alone and then suddenly realizes he's so very not alone. It's like he takes knowledge and dies and then lives and shares the wisdom with Conan O'Brien and us. It's like Louis C.K. sees something very real that we all encounter. And he describes it, but he's not exactly sure what it is. Maybe it's wisdom. In our text today, Solomon tells us, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of mirth, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. See, I think Louis C.K. and Solomon are testifying to the same thing. They encounter it, they describe it, but they don't know exactly what it is or who it is. And I think that's good for us, because sometimes we think we know a thing just by naming a thing and labeling a thing and judging that thing, when in fact, by doing so, we kill that thing and can no longer know it at all, the thing we want to know. Actually, it could be that the thing we have encountered and want to know is naming us, judging us, even creating us. See, I think uh, Louis C.K. and Solomon are encountering the word of God, the light that enlightens all men, whom we wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger and crucified on a tree in a garden. I think they're encountering Jesus, the judgment of God. If you think you understand Jesus, you probably don't know Jesus. And you probably don't pull your car off to the side of the road and just start crying like a baby. And you're probably getting impatient with Ecclesiastes, and probably me. You probably wish Jesus were some comprehensible knowledge, like a list of rules that you could like apply to your life rather than the life who insists on applying you to himself. Well, this is our seventh message from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I hope you realize that Solomon really hasn't given us the kind of knowledge that we could apply to our lives in order to make ourselves beautiful or good. However, Solomon is testifying to something that is beautiful and good. Solomon is encountering Jesus, but he doesn't yet see Jesus in the body of a man. So I thought maybe it would be good to ask, what does he see? Well, from his writings and from his place in history, we know that he sees this. The tree. At least with his mind's eye, he saw the tree in the garden. In Proverbs, Solomon wrote, wisdom 
is a tree of life. And he referred to wisdom as the discernment between good and evil. Genesis talks about two trees in the garden, in one location. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. In the New Jerusalem, there's only one tree, and yet everyone knows the good already because they've been known by the good. God alone is good, said Jesus. Well, Solomon saw that Ha'adam, the man that is us, took knowledge of good and evil from that tree as if wisdom were something that he could capture and possess. And when Adam did that, everything seemed to die and the garden turned into like a house of mourning. And yet, God gives wisdom on the tree, which is life, that turns a human heart into like a house of mirth or a garden of delight. We all took the life of Jesus in a garden on a tree. And there God gave the life of Jesus in a garden on that tree. Solomon couldn't yet see Jesus hanging on that tree that we call the cross, yet he did seem to see wisdom And his relationship with wisdom is kind of bizarre because it seems to like kill him and then set him free. In today's text, he writes this, don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? As if gaining wisdom is the death of yourself. And yet he also writes, wisdom is good with an inheritance. Well, because Ha'adam, the man that is us, took the life of wisdom on the tree, God sentenced him to loneliness and death and kicked him out of the garden. He placed two cherubim, which were not little baby angels, but these like war, awesome, two cherubim at the entrance of the garden and a flaming sword. And a flaming sword is judgment. The sword divides things and the flame purifies things. Wisdom is a tree of life, wrote Solomon. Well, if Ha-Adam is to ever have eternal life, he must return to that tree. He must surrender, perhaps, the knowledge that he took from that tree. Maybe even the life of wisdom that he took from that tree. God told Noah, remember, the life is in the blood, and I require the lifeblood of every Adam. To live forever, man would have to return his, his life to the, to the tree, like the veins in your body return blood to the heart. And to do that, Ha-Adam must pass through the flaming sword, which is the judgment of God. Well, Solomon saw the tree... And Solomon saw the house, the the temple. He thought he had built the house, God's house, which at first was a tent, you remember, often called the tabernacle. If you've read the whole Bible, no doubt you've been just terribly perplexed, bored to tears uh, and perplexed at uh, all the detailed descriptions of the tabernacle, right? 
and the sacrifices. I mean, you would think the Old Testament would be full of laws governing behavior, and there are a whole lot of laws, along with the history of how God's people seem to break every one of those laws. And yet, an immense portion of the Old Testament is a description of God's house and the sacrifices that were be to be made at the entrance to the house in order to enter the house. In the center of the house was the inner sanctuary, and in the inner sanctuary was the Ark of the Covenant, which was literally the knowledge of good and evil in the form of the Ten Commandments written on stone, encased in a gold box covered by the mercy seat, the caparet, upon which the high priest would sprinkle the blood of sacrifice. The mercy seat was also the judgment seat and the throne of God on earth. From this spot, the glory of God would speak to Moses and give him wisdom this this throne was guarded by two cherubim built into the top of the ark so you see I think God wants us to get this incredible picture the throne of God is guarded by two cherubim like the tree is guarded by two cherubim as if God is enthroned on that tree as wisdom, which is his judgment. In the Revelation, John sees a slaughtered lamb standing on the throne of God. And we all know that he was enthroned on a tree in the garden on the edge of the Temple Mount. As you know, a curtain separated the people from the throne. You see the curtain in the picture and before the curtain on the altar in the house of God, the people of God were commanded to make sacrifices and offerings. There were all sorts of offerings and sacrifices for all sorts of situations and occasions, events, but they all meant atonement or at one with God, and they were all surrender to the judgment of God. And, and it was clear that the worshipers were to somehow, they'd lay their hand on this, they were somehow to identify with the sacrifice. In other words, God wasn't asking for sheep and goats. He was asking for people, worshipers. The priests would cut the sacrifices with knives. They were like swords. And the offerings would be received by fire. Fire that came down from heaven, for it was the breath of God, the ruach of God, the spirit of God, the very presence of God. You see, if Ha-Adam, the man that is us, is to get back to the garden and receive the life of God, which is the wisdom of God, which is the word of God, which makes man in the image of God, he must somehow pass through those flaming swords. In the book of Romans, St. Paul spends the first 11 chapters describing the judgment and judgments of God, the, the word of God, which is living and active like a two-edged sword. He describes the judgments of God for 11 chapters, and then he writes this. God has consigned all people to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That he may judge all and have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. In other words, we can't understand all of his judgments, and yet we can somehow see his judgments and know that his judgment is good for all. 
Then he writes this, for from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Next verse. Therefore, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your logical worship. Become a living sacrifice and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know, Solomon never read the book of Romans. But I think he saw the book of Romans in the house of God and on the tree in the garden. Solomon saw Jesus, even though he didn't yet see him in a body of human flesh. So let's pick up where we were last time, okay? I can't explain it all, but hopefully I can help us all to get the picture. Ecclesiastes 6, 7. Solomon writes, all the toil of Ha'adam, the man, is for his mouth, yet his nephesh, his soul, is not satisfied. Remember what we said last time, Ha'adam, the man that is us, is all humanity and yet one man. It refers back to the first man, it anticipates the eschatos man, the last man, Jesus. Paul wrote, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The first Adam was a living nephesh, soul, and the last Adam was made a life-giving spirit. The story of Ha'adam is your story. Genesis 2. Ha'adam, the man who is us, is alone in the presence of God because he does not enjoy God. He cannot perceive God who is the good. He does not know what Solomon and Louis C.K. were beginning to know. He doesn't have knowledge of good and evil. Verse 7, all the toil of Ha'adam is for his mouth, yet his soul is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? All that we talked about last week. Better, literally gooder, is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the nephesh, the soul. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The ruach, the spirit of God, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what Adam is and that he he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to Ha'adam? Remember that after Ha'adam took the knowledge of good and evil from the tree in the garden, God found Ha'adam, Adam and Eve, hiding in the trees, and Adam, Adam, began to dispute with God. Adam took his new knowledge of good and evil and began to justify himself. But the more he tried to justify himself, the more he incriminated himself as someone who, yes, took knowledge from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The more you try to justify yourself, the more you incriminate yourself. As someone that has believed the lie that you can make yourself in the image of God with knowledge which you stole from the tree. You incriminate yourself as someone that thinks they are their own helper, their own savior, uh, their own judge, their own redeemer, their own creator, someone not good. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for Ha'adam? 
Well, since Ecclesiastes 2, verse 3, Solomon has been asking this question, what is good for Ha'adam? And that's also Adam's question, isn't it? What is good for me? And that's also your question and my question. We're constantly trying to consume the good or take knowledge of the good to soothe this desperate, desperate longing for the good deep down within our nefesh, our soul. Well, from the start, Genesis 1, God tells us what is good. It is man in the image of God. That's good. In Genesis 2, we discover that this is communion with God, for it is not good that the Adam is alone. Well, Jesus is the perfect image of God. And Jesus has perfect communion with God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. And so, of course, the good for Adam is to become just like Jesus. And that reminds me of this cartoon. Oh, Lord, make me more like your dear son, Jesus. Crap. (laughs) You know, a cross is sorrow. That turns into joy. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for Ha'adam? While he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So Ha'adam is like a shadow under the sun. A shadow is defined by what it is not. It's the absence of life. So if a shadow could reason, if you were a shadow, think to yourself, what would you be most terrified of? The sun, yeah, the light, terrifying. Psalm 144.4, Adam is like a hebel, a vapor, a vanity. His days are like a passing shadow. A shadow self must be a false self, like the self that Adam constructs before God with his own self-justification, pretending to be good, why? Because he's not good. Next verse. Good name, a good name, is better, gooder than good ointment. It's, It's gooder to be good than to smell good. And the day of death is gooder, better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, ha'adam, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better, gooder, better than laughter, for by sadness of the face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What is the house of mourning? I would imagine that that would be like a funeral, right? Or a house in which someone has just died. What would be the house of mirth? Well, I would imagine that would be like a house in which a baby had just been born. A hospital room, for instance. The temple was a house of mourning, I mean, they would slaughter animals with these huge knives in the temple and offer them in the fire. That's a lot of death. And yet, something's being born. 
The temple was a house of mourning and yet also a house of feasting and great joy. I mean, you read about it. It was like a giant sing-along dance and barbecue. There's so many days of feasting are commanded throughout the Old Testament. It's shocking. Over and over, the Israelites were commanded to feast on roast lamb, broken bread, red wine, giving thanks with glad and generous hearts while singing, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And so the temple was a house of mourning that turned into a house of feasting. And for 1,500 years, the Israelites must have wondered, what's on the other side of that fire? Where do the burnt offerings go? God doesn't eat sheep. He doesn't eat goats. What does he do with them? And what's on the other side of that curtain on top of the ark between the two cherubim on the, on the throne of God? What is God's judgment? Well, Solomon would go to the house of mourning and it would turn into a house of mirth. Louis C.K. faced profound sorrow on the side of the road realizing that it was all for nothing and he was alone and then all at once he felt profoundly happy. Nine years ago, I sat in a parking lot down on Federal. I think it was in front of a big lot that's down there near Colfax. My church and uh, my career had just blown up in my face, and I realized that all my toil was for nothing. It was the vanity of vanities, and I was just so very alone. I, I, I mourned my own death. And then suddenly I realized that I was so very not alone. And I was free. So you don't have to go to the temple. It's like you are a, a walking temple. So you can go to the house of mourning anytime you like, and by sorrow of face, the heart is made glad. Verse five, it's gooder for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So, well, so thank God for the rebuke of the wise because it can send you to the house of the morning. And thank God for oppression and for realizing that a bribe corrupts the heart. That is realizing that people don't enjoy the good. They need to be motivated by the bad in order to act good. And that's what we call good. And that realization We'll send you to the house of mourning. Duh! Gooder, verse 8, is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days gooder than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? Some of you have been asking that nonstop. For the last five days since the election. Some of you were asking it nonstop for the previous years before the five days of the last election. And Solomon says, All that asking is not wisdom. So I think he just called all of us a bunch of fools. 
He says the end of a thing is gooder than the beginning of a thing. Which means that the good is being added to the thing through time. Which implies that God is like telling a good story in time. So a day may seem evil and you may judge it as evil, but even then God is revealing, still revealing the beautiful in time. If you think that you're in charge of the story, you have a proud spirit that has believed a lie. But if you think you're part of a good story that's being told, you have a patient spirit that waits for the revelation of beauty. So do you have a proud spirit or a patient spirit? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you have a proud spirit, you think that you're the author of the story and anger will lodge in your heart. Why? Because God's judgment is different than your judgment. If you trust God's judgment, you have a patient spirit. For you believe the truth that God makes all things beautiful in their time. He makes all things beautiful with his word, which is his judgment which is Jesus, which we meet in a garden on a tree that we call the cross on which the Lamb of God offered himself. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection, literally the shadow of wisdom, is like the shadow of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of, literally saves, him who has it. You know, if we take scripture literally, which is just like a fun thing that I like to do sometimes, if we take scripture literally, uh, uh, along here, and where it says Jesus is the wisdom of God, then Solomon literally just wrote this. The advantage of knowledge, like knowledge of good and evil, is that Jesus saves him who has it. That's, that's pretty good news. The advantage of Adam taking knowledge from the tree is that God gives the life of Jesus on the tree who saves Adam. For the shadow of Jesus is like the shadow of a roof bought with money. It's like we exist in the shadow of Jesus who protects us from the burning light of the sun. But one day, we will be filled with Jesus who shines like the sun. Verse 11, wisdom is good. That means Jesus is good. And he makes us good. Actually, the New Testament says we are his inheritance. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Verse 13. Consider. That's imperative tense. This is the thing. Everybody's like, what do I have to do? It's right here. Consider the work of God. This is what God is commanding you to do. Stop. Shabbat. Sabbath. And consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? 
in the day of prosperity. Literally good. I'm including the literal translations here in all these places because all of Ecclesiastes is asking this question about what is good. And the whole Bible is wrestling with this thing that we took from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. So, so he literally writes this. We change it into English make it sound good. But in the day of good, be joyful. And in the day of evil, raw, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. It's like God wants us to know the good. I mean, truly experience the good and enjoy the good and then mourn the loss of the good, realizing that we cannot control the good. All we can do is be thankful for the good. In my vain life, I have seen everything, writes Solomon. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? How's that for like a life verse? Do you ever, I gotta find my life verse. How's that one? Be not overly, sorry, I, my, be not overly righteous, my life verse. <laughs> well, what would that mean? Like, level five righteousness is okay, but level six, no, that's, that's too much. That's over the line. Ben Carson level righteousness. Well, that's too much, just too much. Donald, oh, that's pretty good, pretty good. Well, does righteousness come in degrees? that you could measure and judge and then use to compare yourself to your neighbor, does it? Solomon says that he saw all the toil of man was envy. Then he writes, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? You know, if some people can't form an identity with righteousness, they'll try to form an identity with wickedness. Verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The sin of trying to create an identity with wickedness or righteousness. Like they're both the same thing somehow. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man. More than 10 rulers are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous Adam on earth who does good and never sins. Do you catch that? Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good. That means that any man who thinks he's righteous is only acting righteous, which is not very righteous. He might know about the good, but he's only acting good, which is very, very, very not good. That's evil. He imitates the form of the good, but is empty of the good like a shadow. He is the vanity of a vanity. He is the me that I think I create. This is a picture from our series in, in Ephesians. For in Ephesians, St. Paul talks about the very thing that I think Solomon is talking about in the book of Ecclesiastes. He calls this the old Adam, the old man. I create him with my judgments. I take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and discover that I'm evil. And then I try to make myself good, which only makes me more evil. In other words, I begin to justify myself with my judgments and what I create is vanity. 
I think people call that sometimes like the human ego or, or pride. It's disobedience. Why? Because I'm not trusting the good who is God to create me with grace. I'm taking the good who is God to create myself with the energy of my own flesh. See, the old man is the product of believing a lie that I am my own creator. Judge. Savior. Redeemer. It's the product of a lie and what I create is nothing. That I pretend is something. A shadow self, an empty illusion, darkness. In which I am trapped. You see, there is an I in the self that is the breath of God. I didn't create I. But when I created me, I became trapped in me, cut off and alone, and I think that's called death. That's why Paul wrote, who will deliver me from this body of death? Literally, who will save me from what? Me! I create the old man by crucifying wisdom and taking knowledge and then realize that I am alone and dead in the house of mourning that is me. Myself. An empty stone temple at which I worship. But listen again to what Solomon just wrote. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength. Did you catch that? Wisdom is active like a person. So wisdom isn't knowledge taken, but like a person to be received. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man, Adam, on earth who does good and never sins. So none is righteous. We've heard that before. None is righteous. But wisdom, who is Jesus, gives strength to the wise. I guess that's why they're wise. They are known by wisdom. You know, St. Paul also wrote that we have a new Adam created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see, there is a me that God creates. The new Adam, the new man created through the eschatos Adam who is the life-giving spirit and remember the spirit the breath is in is in the blood the life is in in the blood we strive after the spirit and lo and behold for all time the spirit is striving after us we take the life of wisdom on a tree that's our judgment and God gives the life of wisdom on the tree that's his judgment God's judgment God's judgment is to make me beautiful in time My judgment is disobedience. And God's judgment is mercy. My choice is pride. And God's choice is humility. 
My choice is envy, and God's choice is sacrifice. My choice is darkness, and God's choice is light. My choice is lies, God's choice is truth. My choice is death, and God's commandment is eternal life. My choice is empty, and God's choice is full. My choice is what I am not, and God's choice is who I am. My choice is loneliness. And God's choice is communion. Do you see that the new Adam, which is the life of Christ, is revealed in the empty space that you thought was yourself? For where sin increased, <laughs> grace abounded all the more. You were once darkness, writes Paul. And now you are light in the Lord. The old Adam is the product of my pride, shame, and fear. He is the creation of my choices in time. The creation of the proud spirit. The new Adam is the manifestation of faith, hope, and love. He is the manifestation of God's eternal choice revealed in time through the patient spirit. Christ's spirit in me. The true me is God's eternal creation being revealed in this beauty pageant called space and time. And yet right now, this morning, to be honest with you, I'm both. And the degree to which I make choices in pride, shame, and fear is the degree to which I'm trapped alone in darkness, lies, and death but the degree to which I make choices, or I should say God's choices of faith, hope, and love make me or manifest in me, that's the degree to which I'm free to enjoy the good and be the good, which is the eternal happy image of God. But here's the rub. I can't judge between God's judgment and my judgment. Why? because that's just more of my judgment, right? In the words of Jesus, I can't separate the wheat from the tares. In the words of St. Paul, I love this. It's a small thing that I'm judged by you. I don't even judge myself. God will judge me. So, so, <laughs> that's great and yet confusing because what do I do? How do I change? Next verse, surely there is not a righteous Adam on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear someone, you know, servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself, yeah, have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be, I have tested, remember? And he said that God's test, anyway. All this I have tested by wisdom saying, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? out who can find it out and I think this is the point of Ecclesiastes Solomon can't find wisdom but wisdom finds Solomon and where did wisdom find Solomon I think he found Solomon in the house of mourning as he sat before the judgment of God Solomon can't make himself wise, but wisdom makes Solomon. Wisdom is the judgment of God. 
something happened to me nine years ago that forever changed the way I view the judgment of God. I had seen it over and over in scripture, but on this occasion I experienced it. Susan and I have a friend that we prayed with and for over the span of about 15 years who was horribly abused in this satanic cult as a child and then as a young woman. In those 15 years, we had seen the Lord deliver her from absolutely horrid uh, and, and incredible bondage. He, he would usually do it by having us pray through old memories that would turn into visions in which he would appear. I wouldn't see the visions because I just really don't have that gift, but my wife and my friend would see them and they would match because Susan would be whispering in, in my ear telling me. And, and whenever and wherever my friend would lift her eyes, and sometimes this would happen like as we're sitting there, whenever, like the sermon two weeks ago, remember about whenever she would lift and look at Jesus in the vision, suddenly the evil one would lose all of his power and he would flee and the demons would flee. Well, nine years ago, she went on a mission trip to Africa, and one night at a campfire, she watched some Africans sacrifice a goat in that fire. The evil one used it to remind her of some horrid memories of abuse, fill her with fear, and make space for him in her soul, a space of shame. So when she returned, we prayed through that memory. It was a very recent memory, and I asked her to picture Jesus in the memory, to, to look for Jesus in the memory. That's usually how the visions would start. She couldn't see him, and she was terrified to look at the fire. This would usually take quite a while, and I'd pray, and we'd pray, and I'd pray, and I remember finally thinking, you know, maybe he's in the fire. And I said, hey, why don't you look in the fire, which was really hard for her to do. But when she finally did, she said, hey, he's standing in the fire. I said, well, we'll watch him. And he motioned to her to, to show her where she held on to, to shame. And so finally she handed him that place of, of shame. And after she handed him the shame, she did something that she really hadn't done before. She turned to me and she said, but I'm so angry. I'm just so, so, so angry. She was angry that God had allowed all of this to happen after all that we had been through. She was angry that she had been so fragile and so easily deceived. She was angry with God's judgment. And then I said, I'm angry too. I'm really angry. My church had just imploded. I had just been defrocked. I was angry that it all seemed to be for nothing. And I was left alone sitting in parking lots down on Colfax or Federal. I mean, never before had I experienced such sorrow or mourned so deeply. And I knew, I knew that God was in charge. So I was really, really angry at God's judgment. And Jesus is God's judgment. And then Susan said, I'm angry too. And Jesus was still standing in the fire. I asked Susan and my friend what they saw, and they said he's standing there holding out his arms, motioning for us to come join us in the fire, join him in the fire. And, and so I said, okay, well, let's, let's walk into the fire. And so we held hands together in prayer, and then I said something like this, baptize us with your fire. Now I see that we were presenting ourselves a living sacrifice. You see, Jesus didn't come so that we would no longer sacrifice. 
Jesus came to help you sacrifice yourself to the judgment of God. And so we presented ourselves to the fire. After, after a time, I said, well, what do you see? What do you see? And my friend turned to me and she said, you're ugly. And I said, I know. I mean, you know, in the vision that you're having, what do you see? And she said, no, you're ugly. And Susan said, yeah, in the vision, Peter, you're ugly. Like you're all burned up and charred and covered with ashes. We're all ugly. And so I thought, what, what do I do now? And then Susan, she turned to me and she said, Peter, ask Jesus to blow on us. And so I did, and he did. And then I heard my friend gasp audibly, and she just exclaimed, I'm not fragile! I'm not fragile! And then she and Susan told me what they saw. Jesus blew on us and all the ash, the ashes of our old men, the old man, the old Adam, they blew away, revealing these incredible bright, white, not fragile, indestructible, eternal creatures. And for a few wonderful minutes, that house of mourning turned into the house of mirth. And none of us was alone. And each of us could not help but worship. We were happy and free. And now this is what I want you to see. That not only happens in late night, bizarre, weird, and strange deliverance prayer sessions, which I don't know if I'll ever have another one like that. They don't only happen there. It not only happens in the temple in Jerusalem. It can happen every moment in the temple that is your body, in the garden that is your heart. As Paul writes, in God we live and move and have our being. In other words, we are surrounded by the antibodies that destroy our body of death and set us free. As John writes, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. If you know something about physics, you know that light is always in the now. And Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. You see, it happens when you Shabbat when you Sabbath, when you stop and consider the judgment of God. It happens when you stop running from God and sit in silence before the judgment of God that is his word, the light of the world that enlightens all men. See, it's happening right now. This is the tree. This is the throne. And this is the judgment. Wisdom took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Do you know what's on the other side of God's judgment? Do you know what's on the other side of that fire? Sheep. Goats. Lambs. Babies. Made new. 
and you in the image of God. See, I think that this may be the darkest lie of the devil. He's even convinced the church to spread it and to teach it to the world. That's why some people can't hear all of this sermon. And this is the lie. It is that we should run from the judgment of God. When we should run with every bit of energy we have into the judgment of God. For on the other side of the judgment of God is the new creation. And on this side is darkness, lies, death, and yeah, Hades. So come to the table. Present yourself to the judgment of God. Another way to say that is just, in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. So now, live in this moment. If you're like me, there become moment, There are moments that are really hard to, to live in this moment. I mean, for me, it's usually in the middle of the night or after someone has criticized me for something or things aren't going well. And I, what I do is I begin to question all my judgments. And there was a time when I used to think that the pastor's job was to analyze everything and give everybody his judgments, but I've given that up because I just don't know stuff. I don't know, okay? So um, I don't know exactly who you should have voted for. I don't know exactly what to do about all the social issues on the church today. I really, I struggle with all that, but this one thing I do know, and that is that the judgment of God is good. So what, what I, since that experience, one thing I've kind of learned to do is that I'll wake up just like so stressed over my judgments. I don't know if this is right. I don't know if that is, that is right. And I'll just imagine myself lying there before God naked. And I'll just say, God, this is me. You know that I like beer. You know that. You know that I watch some shows. I don't know that you think I sh- if I should watch that or not. And God, I, I really, really, I just don't know. I, I don't know whether that was good or that was bad. I get confused about all that. I, I just am telling you, here I am. I'm presenting myself, Lord God. I don't understand me. Send your fire. And then I just imagine the fire. And, and you know, uh, when you imagine something that's true, I think that's called faith. And God is sending the fire all the time. But you see, when I do that, the house of mourning turns into a house of mirth. Because I'm God's problem. (laughs) And he will take care of me with his judgment. And his judgment is that he loves me more than... I'm worth Jesus to God, who is his very own heart. And so, you see, I, that, that's a moment too. But I'm saying we're called to live in that moment all the time because there will come a last moment. And in that last moment, you'll see him and he will be shining like the sun. Why is it so important for you to believe that God's judgments are good? So you'll run into the sun, not away from the sun, 
Do you know why it gets so hellish in this world at times? <laughs> I think God uses us to teach us to run into his judgments. That's why I lie awake in the middle of the night and go, ah, I've been counting on my judgments. And, and the day will come when you run into his judgments and he says, sweetheart, the nightmare's over. Welcome home. But you see, you can live that way right now in faith. So in the name of, all I'm saying is in the name of, I'm going to start preaching again. In the name of Jesus, believe the gospel. Amen. All right. Have a great week. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. I have a grape in my hand. And that's because Kathleen put it in my hand to remind me to say to you, if you'd like to come to the refresh service this week, it's Wednesday night. Vince and Kathleen do a wonderful job. And it's an opportunity to help you live in the moment. It's a moment of worship and surrender. So that's Wednesday night. Details are in the S News.